I think my true north star is that I've always wanted to achieve my potential. I, I don't know how far that would go, but my biggest fear in life is unachieved potential. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Kevin Wu. You might have seen him in the news lately as one of the Forbes 30 under 30 Asian names for 2021. This guy here is a trailblazer who wears many hats and has an incredibly fascinating career path. Kevin has a background in law, but left legal practice temporarily to start an insect protein startup, Ento, in 2018. Ento is the first company in Malaysia to provide roasted crickets for human consumption. He is also the founder of a Scandinavian furniture retail business, managing partner of his own law firm, Kevin Wu & Associates, and a soon-to-be-launched consulting business. Welcome to the show, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here, Janice. Thanks for having me. So Kevin, you obviously have a very colourful career trajectory, to say the very least. And uh, in today's podcast, we're very excited to dive into your story. What not many people know is the original story of how you got your first taste at entrepreneurship at the tender age of eight. So would you like to start by telling us the story? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the lesser known stories. Anyone who's been reading previous articles so I was born in KL and grew up in PJ. And it was one of those initiatives that my mom thought when I was in primary school as young as eight, it was good to kind of get real world exposure out there. So she organized something with a friend where we've had this bunch of toys for consignment. And we rented out a booth at Plaza Montera. At that time, they had the weekend markets every Saturday and Sunday. And Basically, uh, we rented out for just one weekend and we started selling toys. So it's myself, my mom and my younger brother. We were standing around the whole day from like 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. selling toys. And it was my first taste of entrepreneurship and what it was like to you know, run a business behind the so-called the other side of the table. So in the morning when we got to the place, unloading was extremely tough. We've had to kind of place it in a very nice order that people can see what we were selling. We had to make sure the price was right. There's a lot of things to do actually when I was eight, but thankfully my mom was extremely great. She organized a lot of the mundane backend stuff. I remember the highlights was definitely the second day when my brother and I figured out we had this toy that you blow a balloon and you stick it to a propeller and the, the air from the balloon kind of propels this thing up and that became like an instant bestseller wow. and selling for like 20 ringgit per pop. So that became bestseller and we were doing it all afternoon on Sunday and and made uh, sales and made some profit. I'm very pleased to say. Not much, uh, probably no more than 200 ringgit. But we very quickly spent that on a family dinner at Pizza Hut on Sunday. But I think that is one of the most impressionable and lasting entrepreneurship state that I've had because that kind of inspired me to go on to other ventures. And, and I knew from that age, I wanted to run a business, to be an entrepreneur because the whole uh, process of, figuring things out end-to-end and then eventually leading to the sales and getting the reward in terms of profit from it was extremely gratifying for me at that point in time. So that was what that was my first stint in entrepreneurship. I'm sure you love your mom for that, for kicking start this journey of entrepreneurship for you then. I hope you had an opportunity to thank her. Yeah, I definitely keep reminding her of that story. She's a great supervisor at the time and I, I hope that she's uh, 
proud of me for pursuing entrepreneurship today. I'm sure when she tunes in and listens to this little shout out you're giving her, I'm sure it will touch her heart as well. Interesting. Oh yeah, if she's listening. Hi, mom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Awesome shout out. So yeah, just really curious, right? Because you said that from a really young age, when you were exposed to this whole journey of, I guess at that time, it's not even called entrepreneurship. It's just more of like tinkling around, figuring out what kids like, what kids are willing to pay money for at that tender young age already kind of knew that you wanted to explore the business world. But at the end of the day, you decided to study law. Tell us a little bit more about how that happened. I emigrated to the UK when I was 12 years old to start my high school education. So I was there for many years. At the age of 17, during what was was known as A-levels, where we had to submit an application to universities in terms of what we're going to study and where we're going to study. And I was really torn between the two subject areas. Number one, was business management. And number two was law. I ended up choosing law because I felt that business management is not a very conventional degree to take at undergraduate level. And I always thought that if I wanted to, because you don't really need to study business at undergraduate to do business, right? You don't, in fact, you don't need any formal qualifications. <laughs> so it's, it's good to kind of just get some so-called back, get a background degree and be trained in a certain profession. Hence why I chose law. By the back of my mind, I always knew that if I needed a more formal business education, doing a master's of business administration is, is always on table. And that's an option that I could revert back later on in my, in my career. How long did you practice law for? before kind of taking a hiatus? I did a bare minimum. I joined one of the largest law firms in Malaysia in the corporate department. What I did was specializing in corporate mergers and acquisitions. I was only there for nine months just to qualify as a lawyer, but I learned a lot in nine months because we were extremely busy closing up a deal, a mega infra- uh, mega. 400 million infrastructure project at a time. So it was a good time for me to be there. I decided that I wanted to take a brief break away from the profession. I never thought I would come back, to be honest. So after I left law, I spent about two months traveling. I went to visit some business schools in the US and was just really weighing and considering my options. But I kind of got inspired by a taco stand that I came across in Mexico that kind of what inspired me to my first startup doing alternative proteins. So this alternative protein that Kevin is referring to is actually farming crickets. Tell us a little bit more about it. I got this idea about insects for human consumption when I came across a taco stall in Mexico City. I've tried it because I was told it was a regional delicacy from Oaxaca. (laughs) I tasted it. It tasted like nutty shrimps and I thought it tasted delicious. So I went back to my hotel room the very same day. I googled why were people not consuming more crickets or insects if it tastes like shrimps. And it turns out there's this whole new area of alternative protein. And actually, in fact, there was a movement going on. A group of community and scientists were pushing insects for human food. And that's how I kind of got into the whole ecosystem of alternative proteins. And I guess, and and I've further researched that it was being done in the US and Europe, but not in Asia to a meaningful level. So I decided to be a pioneer in the space in alternative protein and insects for human consumption. So decided to launch Ento later that year. And what was the general reaction like? I mean, lots of Malaysians, I think when they hear about consuming insects, I think that would really give them like the EVGBs, right? So I got to say a confession up front. I actually did try Kevin insect snacks and I have to say they were really delicious, right? Were you surprised, Jen? I was very surprised. I was a bit scared at first. I was like, okay, if 
Kevin's a friend. I'm going to trust him <laughs> if he says that it's delicious. So I gave it a go. It was like with bated breath. I was like, oh God. And it was actually really good. But how, how was the general reaction if you could sort of summarize that from people when they heard like, okay, you, ha- you have this idea to start up like an insect protein. Yeah, we have to rewind a few years back to 2018. At that time, not just insects, but I think the whole alternative protein, plant-based protein or cell-based protein was largely unheard of here in Southeast Asia. A lot of people were you know, still consuming uh, high amounts of meats. In fact, kombucha wasn't even a thing back then, 2018. It doesn't seem like that long ago, right? But trends have changed very fast. So at that time, you know, kombucha wasn't a thing. We don't have all these bakeries popping up and, and whatnot. The food scene was extremely different back then. So when I first introduced uh, my business idea to friends and family, it was obviously very odd for for, for someone to think, hey, Kevin's in this business that he farms crickets and then roasts it and sells it as, as food, right? Or as snacks. I think I always knew that the general reaction from the majority of consumers would be huge hesitance. I think there's that ache factor that is a challenge. And I knew that from the start. I think that it was the biggest challenge to overcome. But secondly, I think that the nutritional and sustainability benefits are huge. So if we can somehow draw that fine line and educate the market and consumers that, look, the way we've been consuming protein and food is extremely unsustainable and we need to change our habits. And I'm very pleased to say that the past few years, we've seen a huge shift in in the way we consume food and also alternative proteins specifically. Like we've seen the rise of Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, Oatly is going to uh, be listed soon. So these were things that were extremely foreign and not very common in 2018, I must say. So we're still in that mission. I think it's still a challenge, but we're working, our, our mission at is to really change the perception of consumers from that angle. Kevin, I have to say, Janice told me she's tried eating it and I kind of thought in my head, maybe I didn't say it at that time, but I was thinking you probably need to not tell me that it's crickets that I'm eating. Let me taste it first here and see my reaction and then only reveal it to me. I think, like you say, right, it's just kind of like the perception. If I know I'm eating crickets would i be so keen i don't know i think we might have to put that to the test yeah yeah you're more than welcome to come over to our kitchen to try some do it sarah (laughs) (laughs) all right post movement control order in malaysia fun activity on the weekend list so yeah kevin from starting up ento and farming crickets what then inspired you to start up all your other ventures right you have followed up by starting up the scandinavian furniture retail business and then also a law firm. Yeah. And I also heard of the latest management consulting firm venture. So it just sounds like a lot, but I'm sure it's been a journey. Kind of walk us through it and uh, what, what has that journey looked like for you so far? So since starting Ento in 2018, in 2019, around early to mid-2019, I was introduced to this opportunity to partner up with a industry leader, furniture retail space. So my partner has about 30 years of experience in in this space uh, in terms of sourcing, in terms of pricing and introducing to the market. And just so happens that he was looking for a new uh, store to set up. Just so happened that my family has a a vacant lot and we decided to partner up where I would be running the day-to-day operations of the company and taking care of marketing, whereas he would be 
working on the sourcing and the customer relations with suppliers. So that was how FOC started. It's called a French Outlet Center. So FOC. So I, I at that time also, I recently bought a house, my first house, mm. and I knew the pain points of shopping for furniture and furnishing your first house. It's extremely tough because apart from IKEA, because I don't want my house to look exactly like IKEA, I wanted <laughs> something a bit different and something a bit more unique. And I knew the pain points of shopping all these uh, so-called traditional furniture stores. And I saw a real pain point that, look, these are not modernized. I, I'm paying a huge amount of money with you know, no no 0% installment. And, and it's just extremely difficult to purchase furniture. And that's where I was introduced to this opportunity. And I thought that, look, we can probably change the business model a little bit and offer consumers what they really want, such as introducing extremely flexible payment plans like 0% installment for 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. This is very geared and catered towards the up-and-coming millennial home ownership market. Secondly, we've also given our marketing a fresh uh, kind of update because most traditional stores do not have a website even. They just probably have a Facebook page. So what we've done is that we made a really nice website that uh, consumers can browse our catalogs online. Of course, we don't have everything on there, but we're working on it. It's a very young brand that's catered towards the younger population as opposed to the so-called traditional population of consumers in the furniture market. Yeah, so that's a long story short about FOC. We've uh, subsequently scaled from one outlet to about three outlets now. Wow. Congratulations uh, on that. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, that was uh, what I did in 2019. In late 2020, I was kind of toying the idea of going back into practice mm-hmm. and I... I knew I always wanted to start a firm, a law firm. I didn't think I would start it so soon. I think, again, this was kind of born out of my experience from engaging an external lawyer at the time when I bought a house. And I felt that in terms of service levels, in terms of the speed, I think it wasn't up to par in terms of where I wanted it to be. So I felt that there's definitely room for improvement there. And secondly, given, you know, at this time, I've had experience running two companies. I've managed to raise venture financing two, three times already from institutional investors, angel investors and whatnot. I felt that I have a very uh, deep and domain expertise in startup financing and startup related work, having run startups myself. So I decided to launch uh, my law firm late 2020. And our first few clients were in the startup space. So uh, extremely pleased to have worked with some really promising startups. And yeah, that's pretty much how I ended up in startups. And and I didn't expect it to grow so fast. So I've grown just you know, from doing the legal work myself to about seven lawyers now. We have two offices. We've planned to expand to an office in London. So yeah, I didn't expect it to grow so fast and for clients to reach out to us wanting this kind of uh, personal experience and especially a law firm with really deep domain expertise in startups and startup financing. Kevin, it already sounds like you've got so many things on your plate, but it didn't stop there. Uh, In the midst of this pandemic, you're currently working on the upcoming management consulting firm. I don't know if that's a little teaser you want to give to people who might be listening. A law firm at the end of the day, we're a professional service company, right? We are offering services or expertise that we've obviously worked within a domain and we've worked so long to acquire this kind of technical skills and experience. So a couple of occasions have propped up during my, when we were doing some legal work for clients 
that required more than just legal analysis or legal work. It required some quantitative analysis, some market research, and they would just ask me in general, like, do you think I should do it? Do you think I should open up this manufacturing plant? And honestly, that's not a legal question. I think typically we're engrossed in the kind of back end and tying up the contracts. And this really got me thinking that I think I do have the experience to answer this question because I've opened three furniture outlets by, at this point with a, with a logistics hub as well. And all these kind of back end operations, I have the experience and I felt that I could offer a service that is that's more than just legal, that offers a business advisory and business solutions. And I think that just drawing on this experience, I'm able to differentiate myself from other management consulting outfits by saying that we're, we're actually, our expertise comes from being practitioners. You know, I've actually done it. I know how to start a business. I know the timeframe. In fact, I know the company secretary. I can just give him a call to sort this out. And, and having that practical experience instead of just theory and theoretical knowledge and looking at data, I think offers a different uh, perspective on things. Of course, we're not going to immediately compete with the MBBs, the big top three or the big fours. We're, I'm, I'm seeing this as a kind of entry-level management consulting where there's a established medium-sized enterprise with uh, very rich data sets that we can really work with and we can really align that strategy to, to modernize and see what we can do it and where to deploy capital the mo- in the most efficient manner. So the kind of target market segment for the management consulting clientele would be mid-sized enterprises who have a rich data set. I mean, some startup friends ask, Kevin, can you, you know, consult on my startup? And I think it's just too early stage with because startups needs to be extremely fluid and and it's just not much value I can help there for new startups. So I tend to, I, I'm kind of drawing towards and leaning towards uh, mid-sized enterprises with at least two to three years of operating history. Mm. One thing is evident from our conversation already this soon is that you are a man with many wide and varied interests. Would you agree? <laughs> I would get a bit too bored easily if I were to just focus on one field. And I think it's it's in a way, it is a weakness because I'm spread extremely thin across right. many industries. But I try to turn that weakness into a strength because when I look at a problem, it's not just from one specific angle or one specific area. It's from a range of a very rich range of, of areas because I, as part of my product offerings, I offer goods, I offer services, I offer a bunch of different things at varying levels, right? I even have experience, how do we launch a product on web food or food panda? That's not something a typical furniture operator can do or can say so i think yeah i think i have i this becomes a strength by having this uh, broad range of experience and practical experience i love it i love how you talk about even utilizing the knowledge skill set as well as experience um, across the different industries and, and things that you're dabbling into right now yeah i think it's extremely exciting and i'm so blessed because i think i have the best job in the world to be able to look at a bunch of different problems and working on on different things every single day. So it's a real blessing. I guess on that note, though, I'm really curious to know what were certain trade-offs that you have to meet? I think not having more than 12 hours off. <laughs> I think I'm always on emails, on the phone. I'm, I'm happy. And I think that there's no such thing as really work-life 
balance. I think a lot of there's a lot of commentary in uh, papers and articles published about this, and this would spark huge fiery debates. So I try not to go into that. But I think that uh, I think that at this age, at our age, in our twenties or early thirties, it's the kind of golden year to really take the risk and le- learn as much as possible, find your true calling, find a business or start a business and, and grow that. Because when you're much older, I mean, the energy level is not as high. And secondly, the risk profile, when you're older with much more at stake, the risk profile tends to be much lower. So I think that at this age, I, I, I'm a doctor of the hustle culture. I don't sleep for more than seven hours a day every day and I work weekends. So yeah, I think I, I really subscribe to the hustle culture and, and, and just try to learn as much as I can every day and make the most out of each day. Mm. That's that's a really like energizing to hear, Kevin. I don't know if all of us can survive with less than seven hours of sleep, but I think you're definitely you seem to be doing the right thing so far. But kind of touching on that note, and we want to dive a bit deeper on you know some of the learnings that you've had and what your experience has been so far, having starting up multiple business ventures, especially in the midst of this pandemic. We would love to hear more about how you navigated the hurdles and challenges along the way. Starting up with the furniture business 2019 in the year of the pandemic, that was one, that is certainly one industry that would be kind of severely affected, right? Because with the MCOs, people are not allowed to go out. Your business has had to shut close its doors for a while and you reopen for a short period of time and then you close your doors again. It's really hard to predict what will happen next with these government measures. So could you share with us maybe a defining moment that has shaped or challenged you? And was there any point that you almost felt that this might not be worth it and maybe I should just give it up? Yeah. So yeah, I've got a couple of examples here. I think I would like to share a bit more about my experience with, which is a food tech startup business. It's my first business and mark as, as we mentioned, enters in business of marketing insects for food, right? This is already a, a huge uphill challenge and it's, it's tough. It's a tough challenge. But I knew it going in. I knew that there was huge kind of headwinds against against the company and what we're doing to achieve our mission. Definitely, I think there were like a couple of points where we were extremely short on runway and we had to find investors. And that was extremely challenging because finding investors in the food tech space here in Malaysia or even Southeast Asia, it's it's quite challenging, actually. It's never easy to find money. It's never easy to convince people to part with their hard-earned money to invest in your business. A high-risk business, that being said, these are typical people the typical risk profile of these investors are, are pretty high. But but yeah, I think there are definitely like a couple of points, very low points where we were extremely close to close to closing down and just calling it quits because to do this business, we obviously need a long runway with money to be pumped into R&D as well as marketing. And that was extremely tough. I mean, this was even before the pandemic. And thankfully, at the 11th hour, an uh, investor from Singapore just called and said they're very keen to visit our plant and our farm to see what we're doing. And they heard great things uh, from friends. So I was I'm very glad to have got that deal done within a week. They flew down, pretty much got on the next flight to KL. And that was great. 
after we got the money, we've managed to expand, we managed to develop more products. In fact, pre-pandemic, we were a profitable company because we managed to attend a lot of events. We were going to roadshows. We have we had like exclusive launches at, in Singapore with uh, a few key partners. Uh, one of them was in uh, Marina Bay Sands Expo and Exhibition Center. We've heard these stories that food and F&B industry has been hit very hard, when, especially when there's no dining. Sure, there's takeout, but the volume that take people order takeouts nowhere near close enough to justify a lot of F&B operating. And the margins are extremely tight. So when COVID hit, it was an extremely tough time for us because we had to rethink how we were going to market our products because pre- prior to COVID, going to events introduce, and exhibitions were extremely efficient for us. But subsequently during COVID, it was extremely tough. So I, I think there were definitely a couple of low points there where we were, again, running short on runway. And and thankfully, again, twice, two, three times now it's happened at the 11th hour. I've told the investors, look, look you know, this is not going to work. It might be the right business, but it's definitely the wrong timing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think in business, there is a timing for everything. And during a COVID pandemic, it's extremely challenging when we're extremely restricted in terms of movement and the market sentiment's not very high. So, yeah, I think it's extremely tough. So, so Ento is at least three times close to uh, shutting its door and each time is less than two weeks away. Having that difficult conversation, telling the team that, look, we've only got runway until the end of this month. Don't worry, you'll be paid. Everyone will be paid. It's all good. But I think it's time to call it quits because there's no more money to be put into this to continue operations. And I'm so grateful that I have a lot of investors who have trust and belief in my ability to carry this forward and to really build this business, knowing that it's a huge uphill challenge. And and yeah, I can't thank my investors enough to, who have believed in me, even invested during the light of the COVID, trusting and believing that I would, my team and I would find a way to navigate through these uh, choppy waters. So in the midst of navigating this, in the midst of keeping Ento afloat, you also had to manage your furniture business. So competing priorities that just needed your attention, needed your you know, the resources. Did you have a way or a particular sort of mechanism that you used to sort of think about how were you going to strategize and best allocate your resources across all of these different ventures that you had at that time? So although I run two businesses, I try to keep the finances completely separate. I think it's very important not to mix the finances together, especially when they're run by different stakeholders or you know, they have different stakeholder interests in each business. So I need to put a lot of thing, thinking, different thinking hats on each day. I probably change my hats multiple times a day to deal with different problems, depending on which email comes through first. So I think that Having a short, medium, long-term strategy is extremely important. And and I can't say that today I'm going to focus just on Ento, to, tomorrow I'm going to focus on the furniture business. I kind of got accustomed to um, just putting different hats on every day. I know what the stage of every business. And I'm very fortunate to have great operators, so-called managers of each business, who are able to take care of the day-to-day tasks, like compiling paperwork, responding to 
queries or dealing with all these mundane things. So I'm extremely fortunate to have that. So basically, I have to think about the higher level things and what we're going to do and allocate the capital for that. I don't think it's an easy task to be in charge of a wide range of early stage ventures. I think the key thing is the early stage ventures, because I think anything early stage, there's huge uncertainty because the a lot of the model hasn't been proven. And to be honest, I always joke about this, but I think it's to an extent quite true that if you can start a business at Ento, raise venture funding, convince people to buy crickets and eat crickets, you can do anything. The selling for interest I walk in the park, it's just, it's a chair, this is the price, it's, it's made of leather. So so I think Ento was, a, although it's a, it represents the smallest business I have today, it has given me the most learnings and opportunities because it was so hard, honestly, to get a cricket startup off the ground. It's extremely tough. So it kind of makes everything else seem a bit easier. So my training so far, business training is Ento Business School. You don't need an MBA, I feel like. That itself is an MBA and more, right? <laughs> How yeah. do Janice and I sign up for it? <laughs> The application requirement is to down a bag of crickets. So it's a great great segue, Kevin, because the Explore This podcast, we do hope that young professionals like, like Janice, myself, I mean, you're pretty young as well, but it certainly doesn't seem like it because of the wealth of experience you have, right? But young professionals might also wish to sort of figure out or consider more unconventional paths like yourself. So I would say one of the major factors to consider before taking this plunge to leave a very traditional career path with a very stable trajectory is finance. So you've talked about it. You've talked about how Ento has more than twice or thrice had to nearly shut down. So what are some other financial considerations to bear in mind before one decides to start their own business, for example? I think this is a widely talked about issue and a very hotly contested issue. I think starting a business, obviously, it doesn't just require time, it requires capital, it requires money, right? And I think, okay, there's a lot of, I'm trying to break this down in a logical way. I mean, let's say if one is stable profession and a stable job, I think the first thing to think about this is that there's risk in everything that we do. I heard this great quote from the podcast saying that there's, there's no, there's risk in staying in your employment because of the opportunity cost that there presents itself if you stay in a position. And just because you stay in a job doesn't mean that the company is going to be around forever or doesn't mean that your position or your seniority is going to climb over time because there's, there's risk in your boss not even liking you for very for no reason whatsoever, right? And and then that stalls your career. And it doesn't have to be a boss. It could be your boss's boss doesn't like your boss and you're stuck in the middle of it and your career is going nowhere because of this uh, upper level disputes. So I think there's risk in everything that we do. Even a job has its own risk. And like we've all seen, um, the largest and most established companies have also a time period. And some of them have, you know, really fell, fall, fell from grace over the past couple of decades with technology. So I don't think there's such thing as a stable job or a sure thing in this life. I think this generation, we have to be extremely fluid and flexible and take every opportunity there is out there. So that's point number one. I think there's, there's risk in even staying in a job, I think. Number two, okay, sure. I mean, let's say someone has a good job, decent income, pays bills, and and you have an idea that you are itching to do or want to try out or, or venture out to do it. I'm not saying that everyone should just venture out and do a business. I think that there's possibility that you can do it outside in your free time to just validate your ideas 
and or your prototype or whatever it is before taking the plunge. Because once you leave your job, there's no more income, right? And and if you start a new business using your savings, you're just not going to get that level of income that you've had previously. Alternatively, if you were to leave your job and to do it full time, a lot of my peers and a lot of people I know they use their own savings. They um, borrow money from friends and family. That's usually called the F and F. F, the three F round, friends, family, and fools who would invest at such early stage. But I think if you're capable, things would fall into place and work out. I think I can very clearly remember that the hardest thing I had to do was really to take that first step of, of, of not going back to a job. And secondly, using your own savings, your own money to start a business. I think that's extremely tough, right? Especially if when the older you get, uh, you, you mentioned about our age, and I think it's our age. You're, you're right. I think that a lot of us do not have high levels of savings compared to someone who's had decades of work experience. But I think that's that's obviously the con. But the advantages of starting early is that we don't. Our commitments also not very high, so it's not like we have a family to feed or mortgages to pay or that kind of uh, yearly family holiday that everyone expects to go on. I think. As we get older, the cost of starting is higher and higher every every year. So I think that's one of my main rationale of just starting as many as I can in terms of what I can give in terms of my time and energy. So I think if you're young and you're listening to this, I think it's not it's it's not easy, and I don't think it's supposed to be easy. Otherwise, everyone would be doing it. I think you just need a solid idea. Take calculated risks don't take foolish risks and do what what what's within uh, your means i mean i was very, i'm very fortunate that my parents financially comfortable that i could manage to take risks because if i fail i still have the shirt on my backs and i won't be homeless i'll just live with squat squat at my parents house so that's the worst case scenario so thankfully it hasn't come to that and, and yeah i think when you're young i think parents parents are generally quite supportive of our ideas and and I'm just very lucky to have very supportive parents. Mm. I think it's amazing everything that you've shared on how if you have that idea, just act upon it, take action today and to just go forth. But another thing is also that to be able to, to take action and to take that leap of faith without having a North Star might be something that might result in frustration and disappointment because it turns out to be something that you might not, it's not something that you are sure it's going to work out and it turned out to be like a lifetime of regret <laughs> potentially. So I actually want to ask you, you know, what would you describe to be your guiding principle or your North Star that has guided you as you navigated through all of the challenges that you've talked about through the ups and downs and then later on identifying opportunity and then starting up Kevin Wu and Associates and then with the consulting business. Tell us, tell us a bit more about that North Star and that why. I think my true North Star is that I've always wanted to achieve my potential. I, I don't know how far that would go, but my biggest fear in life is unachieved potential. So I want to do everything I can at this age, given the opportunities I have to make the most out of it, because I think it's a duty, not just for my own self-career satisfaction, but also for the people around me. I think it's it's my job to really go above and beyond and, and do extra. I think definitely when one is in business, it will hit a point that the business will pay for your needs. And that would be enough for a lot of people. But sometimes you get into a philosophical uh, reflection and asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I need to achieve more than my needs? Mm -hmm. right? And this is a very deep question. And it really comes down to innate 
kind of ambition and 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 deep down i think my why is that i just i just fear that i unachieved potential that that i don't achieve what i can do in this life so i mean i'm very fortunate to have met my needs early on and and pushing forward is it's it's just pure um trying to achieve my absolute maximum potential yeah i really love that and i think that a lot of our listeners out there would really resonate with that why stay on stuck in something that does not fulfill you and it's not something that you 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 feel is your true passion when you can be out there and and trying it out because if you don't take that leap of faith you you just never know so thank you so much for sharing that and so as we come towards the end of our episode today we want to wrap up with one question that we like to ask all of our guests at the end of every episode And this question is a surprise. Kevin does not know what we're going to ask him. So the question that we have for you is: What's the one thing that you've recently explored that has surprised you? That's a good question. A lot of things surprise me. I'm very easily surprised. I say. I mean, since we're on this topic of career and everything, I, I I think just through my years of like studying, running, and studying businesses, that a lot of things will surprise you. I think my biggest learnings the past few years is that the more I know, the less I know. So over the years, I've definitely become more and more humble, because initially I just thought, oh, it's so simple. Yeah, you just kind of just post this, you sell this, and then. I, but it doesn't work like that. I think that one needs to be extremely humble with their knowledge and to to just constantly learn. And that's to be honest, I think everyone in my companies are smarter than I am in their own respective areas. And and I think that I'm still figuring out my management style and how I can work best as a team and. It's an ongoing process. I don't think I've achieved um, the end point, or I'm satisfied. I think that one thing I have recently learned is is that it's, it's just a journey, right? Just treat entrepreneurship as a journey. There's no end point, and yeah, I've been doing a lot of uh, thinking, and yeah, that's what surprised me. I think I thought that the more I know over time with experience, I would be more knowledgeable. But it turns out that the more I know, the less I know, and that's very very true in entrepreneurship. That's very humbling, Kevin. Thanks for sharing that. And that's really philosophical as well. The more I know, the more I don't know. That's food for thought for us to chew on tonight. So that's all the time we have for today, Kevin. Thank you so much once again for your time on the Explore This podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A C T S P L O R E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8 p.m. See you then. Thank you.